Well, hello there and welcome to the Centre for Independent Studies. My name is Tom Switzer and I'm the Executive Director here at CIS. Well, whether one regards it as a Chinese curse or not, we are certainly living in interesting times, aren't we? You think about it. We've got a health crisis, that is a pandemic, an economic crisis, a government-induced recession to fight the virus, a cultural crisis, that is the rise of radical activist cancel culture, and of course, a strategic crisis with the rise of China at a time of an uncertain and very confused America. Now, the rise of China has meant different things to Canberra and Washington over the years. For the United States, it's a potent geopolitical rival. Some say it's akin to the old Soviet Union during the Cold War. But of course, for Australia, China represents a rewarding trade partnership. Now, in the COVID pandemic, there's no question that the strategic and economic competition between China and America has become increasingly intense. What should we do? What should we in Australia do? Well, we have a terrific panel. Tony Abbott is a former Prime Minister of Australia, and he's a former member of the Howard government and a federal Liberal MP from 1994 to 2019. G'day, Tony. G'day, Tom. G'day, Bob. And Bob Carr is the longest serving Premier of the state of New South Wales from 1995 to 2005. And he's a former Foreign Minister in the Labor governments of Prime Ministers Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard. G'day, Bob. Tom, Tony, good to be with you. Well, Tony, let's start with you. Now, when you were Prime Minister just a few years ago, the governments in Canberra and Beijing described the Sino-Australian relationship as, quote, a comprehensive strategic partnership your government, much to the ire of Washington, then the Obama administration, you signed up to the China-led Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank. Uh, Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, he was praised before and after his address to the Australian parliament in late 2014. Yet in more recent times, you've criticised the same China led by the same president. Uh, Tony Abbott, why have you changed your position on China so dramatically in such a short period of time? Tom, two things. First of all, to some extent, China has changed, but more particularly, our perceptions of China have changed dramatically. Uh, The China of 2014 and perhaps 2015 could uh, still be seen as a China that was liberalising. I don't think uh, anyone could say that today when you've got uh, the repression in Hong Kong Uh, the open belligerence to Taiwan, uh, the aggression towards neighbours such as India, uh, the vicious repression of the Ouija's, cyber attacks on many countries, including Australia, um, threats of economic retaliation against many countries, including Australia. Uh, This is a China or a Chinese government, uh, because I do want to make a careful distinction between the current Chinese government and the Chinese people who do not have an authoritarian gene as Taiwan, Singapore and Hong Kong demonstrate. But this is a Chinese government where Marxism-Leninism has reinforced traditional Chinese exceptionalism uh, to produce a government which is bent on domination, internal domination, external domination. Uh, The only... Uh, relationship that they really accept uh, is one where the Chinese are clearly calling the shots. 
the only nation states that they are prepared readily to tolerate, uh, with the partial exception of the United States because of its extraordinary strength and dynamism, are states which are prepared to be vassals. Now, I don't think that's something that any self-respecting country, uh, even a middle power in China's broad neighbourhood, such as Australia, should be prepared to accept. Okay, well, Bob Carr, you've heard all that. Now, given everything that Tony Abbott has just said and the widely held view that uh, she in recent years has become more authoritarian at home and China's become more assertive abroad, why haven't you also changed your position on China? Bob Carr. On those uh, key litmus questions, Tom, uh, South China Sea, the treatment of Uyghurs in Xinjiang province, and the end of, I think, the tragic end of Hong Kong's autonomy, on those three litmus questions, I've got no difference with the current Australian government. In fact, in my social media commentary, um, in things I've said in television and radio interviews, I've used and somewhat deliberately used the same terminology as used by the serving Australian foreign minister. So that's one category of issues. Let me take another category where my difference with the government has been not what they've done, but the way they've gone about it. I, I, if I'd been foreign minister, I would have been second to none in the world in saying to my Chinese counterpart, um, this, this virus started because of the persistence in China of a practice, a social practice of eating the meat of wild animals. Uh, wet markets, the trading, underground, um, semi-legal. We've got to hold you responsible for this because what happened in 2003 with the SARS virus was a warning about the malign effect of this trade in wild animal meat. It goes on elsewhere in Asia, but we, we expect more of a, a country reaching developing state status such as China. But the way Australia attempted to get that inquiry was, in my view, in the view of, of others, diplomatically inept. What about building coalitions with the Europeans, with friends like Japan and India? And what about involving China in the process from the very start? So no difference with the policy objective, but a feeling that Australia's ineptitude in the diplomacy here, I think diplomacy coming from the Prime Minister's office, had let us down. The, the second example, I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll hurry through it, uh, is Huawei. I said in 2018 that without access to the, the security briefings that the National Security Committee of Cabinet had, I was neutral about Huawei. Looking at it now, Tom, I would say there was an inevitability about the decision we took. But why did we have to turn it into an issue of alliance loyalty? with the then Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, trotting out of the National Security Committee of Cabinet, down the corridor to phone Donald Trump and let the media know that he'd phoned him with the decision, as if it wasn't about Australian national interest, it was about us being deputy sheriff. Uh, the other point is, with Huawei, we could have got away, we could have got away with the decision we made without advertising in December 2018 through our security agencies, who we let loose in the media, that we regarded this as a model for the rest of the world. The Japanese were far more diplomatic in the way they handled it, and I think that was an invitation for Australia to be, be a bit more sophisticated 
in our diplomacy. So there are two issues where my disagreement with the government has been not the policy outcome or the objective, but the way it was pursued. And I think Australian diplomacy could have handled things better. But, but just to sum up, just to conclude this, your answer on this point, my, my view, Tom, is no different from what John Howard said two weeks ago. This is, this is my current stance on China. My current stance on China, I couldn't improve on the words that John Howard used when he said only on July 23rd that Australia had to live with China and should take a pragmatic approach to its dealings with the country. Pragmatism. Because we're entitled to have, even as a dutiful American ally, the right to run a pragmatic national interest-based policy with China. This is me talking, not, not Howard. Yeah. And I'll conclude with the rest of Howard's quote, we must remember the end game. And the end game is to maintain, to the maximum extent consistent with our values, a good economic relationship with China. And he said that, Tom, he said that in a month, in a month, when China bought precisely 48% of all our exports. And that's what complicates this relationship with China, Tony. Many economists believe that uh, the main reason why we weathered the global financial storm more than a decade ago is because of the China connection. Let's get your reaction to something that Linda Jacobson from China Matters, this is what she told the Australian Financial Review in 2019. Whatever you think about China, financially and economically, there is no market that will replace China for decades as far as Australia is concerned. We can quibble over how Australia got here and we can all agree this kind of dependency is very unhealthy. The fact of the matter is, Australia is hugely dependent on China for its prosperity. Linda Jacobson goes on to say, China is going to be a trendsetter, a standard setter in a whole host of areas we haven't even thought about. This is a country we need to engage with deeply, whether we like them or not. Many in the security establishment who have been quite active in the public arena simply don't want to acknowledge this. Tony Abbott. Well, two points. Uh, Bob, uh, much as uh, uh, I admire your scholarship and respect your achievements in public life, I hope you'll forgive me the observation that you spent most of your first answer uh, attacking the Australian government for matters of style rather than focusing on the errors of substance uh, for which the Chinese government is plainly guilty. I mean, sure, you can always argue about tone, uh, but I thought the Australian government did pretty damn well uh, getting the World Health Organization to unanimously to support the Australian-sponsored resolution uh, calling for a full investigation into the China virus, uh, um, so to speak. Look, um, the other point to make is that China does not buy our goods out of a spirit of benevolence towards Australia. China buys our goods because it's good for China. And um, um, as long as China needs our iron ore, our coal and our gas, <coughs> it will keep buying our coal, our coal, iron ore and gas. And the interesting thing about those commodities is, is precisely that, they are commodities, and uh, uh, there is uh, a world demand for all of those things, and at least in the short term, uh, if China chose to punish us by buying iron ore from Brazil, the people currently buying iron ore from Brazil uh, would presumably buy it from us. Now, there are long-term issues, 
uh, such as China's race to develop uh, the Simindu iron ore deposit, the Pilbara killer, as it's called, iron ore deposit in Guinea, uh, and naturally enough, China's unscrupulousness in dealing with third world countries is making that, I suspect, a lot easier for China than it would be for Western uh, proponents. Um, so there are obviously issues, but on the fundamental point, uh, I don't think that selling things to China makes us dependent on China. I think it's more buying things from China that makes us dependent on China. And my concern at the moment, given China's willingness to turn things on and off like a tap when it suits their strategic interest, uh, or if you like, uh, their current propaganda interests, uh, is that we are too dependent upon China in our own supply chains. Well, a year ago in August of 2019, CIS hosted the US Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, and I put to the Secretary of State Hugh White's argument that Australia should not follow America down the road to a potential confrontation that America may not win. And this was his response. Yeah, look, um, you, can, you can sell your soul for a pile of soybeans or you can protect your people. Our, our mission set is to actually do both. That was Mike Pompeo at CIS in August of 2019. I mean, Bob Carr, does the Secretary of State have a point there when he says that security trumps prosperity. I certainly agree with that proposition. Uh, the words you've chosen, security will always trump prosperity. Um, it would be a sad position though, if we, if we retreated to that either or stance. And I don't think there's any need for us to do that. Um, but I think there is a warning, a lot of Australians are alert to it in, in the comment from the Secretary of State, you can sell your, soy, you, you can sell your soul for a sack of soybeans, he then returned to the US and concluded what was, in January, concluded a, um, a delightful deal for American primary producers, for America's exporters to China. He got a good deal for American exporters. And in all the moves against China out of Washington recently, on the tech front, for example, um, on the strategic front, there hasn't been a hint, not even from a hardliner like Peter Navarro sitting there in the White House directing trade policy, that the Trump administration is going to tear up that phase one trade deal, which carries with it a Chinese commitment to buy an extraordinary quantity of American exports. And I was interested to find out from someone in the international trade game recently that the Chinese have conferred on American abattoirs, meat processors, a whole slew of them, the right to export for the first time to the Chinese market where 40% of the beef we export is currently headed. Mm. Um, and when it comes to the precious soybeans we don't export, but which uh, farmers in the, the farm belt in America, Republican voting states, states that, that helped Mr. Trump get elected, they export, there's been a six-fold increase. So that, 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 uh, that uh, rich warning to Australians issued late <coughs> last year by the Secretary of State, I think in August last year, um, saw him return to America after telling us not to sell our soul for a sack of soybeans and then preside over a six-fold increase in America's export of soy soybeans. And that carries a warning. That carries a warning to Australia, Tom. And that is, it is very possible for America entering this, this phase of heightened competition 
and rhetorical combat with China that's going to carry on for the next 100 days and which holds real dangers, it's very easy for America to get us hot and bothered about China and then quietly slip into the markets that we lose. Now, it is possible through an old-fashioned device called diplomacy invented centuries ago for Australia to do what we've done very well under Prime Ministers Hawke and Keating, Fraser, John Howard, um, Tony Abbott, to maximise our trade advantages in China without surrendering any of our values. Tony, Tony, with us tonight, concluded a hugely beneficial free trade agreement. Mm. We've got Australian wine under, under supermarket shelves in China without any tariffs, enabling us to compete with New Zealand and with the US and with the French. We didn't surrender. Tony would be the first to remind us this, of this. Any of our values or any of our positions on human rights or multi-party democracy in that process. And that's something that John Howard reminded us, reminded us of. The economic importance of this relationship can't be overlooked. And really, it's a bit rich for our American friend and partner to keep telling us there's a contradiction in what we do. And meanwhile, this week, we, we heard of the latest trade figures, which showed that China's demand for Australian goods has surged during the pandemic. The first six months of this year, uh, $74 billion of exports. Uh, Tony, as we emerge out of this coronavirus crisis and the pandemic eventually passes, we're going to have to really rely on China, surely, to help uh, grow the economy post-COVID. Well, thank you, Tom. And look, I, Bob, thank you for that tribute to, to the work of the Abbott government. I very much appreciate it. <laughs> I can't help it's very, very much deserved, Tom. You, you, you ran a very sound China policy, and I've said so over the years. Well, that, that, thank you. But I, but I can't help observe that um, in, in your first answer, you're critical of the Australian government. In your second answer, you're critical of the American government. Frankly, I'd rather be critical of the Chinese government. <laughs> well, ask me a question on that front. It, 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 it is the Chinese government. Uh, which by its actions towards its own people and to others is, uh, I think, becoming uh, quite a challenge and a problem uh, to, the, uh, to the wider world. Now, on the economic front, Tom, you are absolutely right. Um, China is a very important part uh, of the Australian economy and I'm not against selling wine and beef and dairy products and iron ore and gas and coal to China, as far as I'm concerned, we should sell as much as we can to China uh, because when we're selling to China, uh, it's China that's dependent upon us. Uh, my problem, the problem that I think we need to address as a matter of considerable urgency, not just here but throughout the West, is when we are buying from them uh, because uh, when we become critically dependent upon China for things that are absolutely essential for our long-term uh, survival and prosperity, uh, I think we are exposing ourselves to a government uh, which is our long-term strategic competitor uh, and which does not always have our best interests. Okay. Well, on that note, Bob, let's ask you a China question. If China's rise does continue dramatically, its economic rise 
Does it stand to reason that it's likely to become a superpower and seek to dominate Asia? Bob Carr. Well, I think uh, the, the iron rule of international relations is that if a power overreaches, then you will see a balancing, you'll see the balancing effect of powers that feel threatened by that. They will join together. It happens as the night follows the day. If China takes insensitive moves that threaten the, the, the 10 nations of Southeast Asia, the, the nations uh, uh, bonded together in ASEAN, then there will be a shift in ASEAN attitudes towards China. If China, if China, I'm, I'm critical of China's behaviour towards India, and I would have no criticism, Tony, of the Australian government's stand on that. Mm-hmm. But if China antagonises India, then India would respond in a way that China would not appreciate. And that is by stepping up its strategic cooperation, its defence cooperation, um, with both the United States and countries like us, allied with the United States. Um, so this, this has a, in international relations, there are corrective forces at work. Right now, the nations of Southeast Asia think they're well-placed to manage bilaterally their relationship with China. As George Yeo, a former foreign minister of Singapore said, um, we in Southeast Asia have had hundreds of years of experience in our relationship with China. They think they're pretty practiced at it. And I don't think Canberra, I don't think Canberra would be clumsy enough to imagine. I don't think our diplomats would be clumsy enough to imagine that our high commissioners and ambassadors in 10 Southeast Asian capitals are able to lecture those governments on how they should design their China policy. But I would, if China overreaches, the correction will be felt. And it will be Japan doing what Japan's not ready to do at the present time. And that is now we should move, move yep. closer to India and, and closer in ways to Australia. Meanwhile, we should just stress that uh, Vietnam, an old Cold War foe of the United States, has been clamouring for security guarantees from Washington in the face of a rising China. So there are countries in the region, although they have that relationship with Beijing, they're nevertheless anxious. And that brings us to the South China Sea. China's conduct in the South China Sea four years ago was ruled illegal by the International Tribunal at The Hague. Tony Abbott, the Liberal governments under your Prime Ministership, Malcolm Turnbull's Prime Ministership, and now under Scott Morrison, uh, have been uh, supporting The Hague's decision. And in just recent weeks, Scott Morrison's government, Maurice, uh, Maurice Payne, the, the Foreign Minister, has said that the Chinese conduct is indeed illegal. If we're so committed to upholding the rules-based international order and we're so anxious about China's rise in the South China Sea, how come Australia doesn't support freedom of navigation patrols through those contested islands in the South China Sea? Tony Abbott. That's a very fair question, Tom. Um, This was something that I was uh, bringing my mind to uh, not long before leaving the Prime Ministership uh, because we can't expect the Americans to be the only country that upholds the international norms. We can't expect America to do all the heavy lifting. Now, uh, I think sailing within 12 miles of a heavily defended, highly militarised artificial island uh, occupied by China uh, would be a, a, a bold and a tough call but I think at some point in time, sooner rather than later, Australia should be prepared to do it. 
I think obviously we'd also have to be prepared um, for adverse consequences in a whole range of areas. Uh, but as a general rule, I do absolutely make this point uh, that we cannot expect the United States to do all the heavy lifting uh, when it comes to international norms, uh, when it comes to maintaining uh, the universal decencies. And certainly uh, we should not allow uh, countries uh, to militarise the Asians just because they can. Well, John Mearsheimer from the University of Chicago is a distinguished professor of political science. He spoke at CIS in August of 2019, and this is what he told me about China and America and how Australia fits into this increasingly intense strategic competition. If you go with China, you want to understand you are our enemy. You are then deciding to become an enemy of the United States. Because we're again, we're talking about an intense security competition. You're either with us or against us. And if you're trading extensively with China and you're friendly with China, you're undermining the United States in this security competition. You're feeding the beast from our perspective. And that is not going to make us happy. And when we are not happy, you do not want to underestimate how nasty we can be. Just ask Fidel Castro <laughs> to take this a step further. Let's assume that you side with China. Let's assume that you is correct and that the Chinese win. You help China win by siding with China. You think you're going to be happy in that world? You don't think they're going to interfere with your sovereignty? You got to come over to the Western Hemisphere, go down to Central America, go down to South America, and ask those countries down there, how they like living with the United States of America. We have a rich history of doing horrible things in South and Central America, right? I'm glad from an American perspective that we're a hegemon, but I'll tell you, from the perspective of our neighbors, it doesn't look like a happy story. That was Professor John Mearsheimer at CIS. Uh, Bob Carr. Yeah, well, uh, I think he's been answered by two Australian ministers and by our Prime Minister in the last few days. And that is in the assertion by our ministers in Washington for the Osmin talks and by our Prime Minister speaking roughly the same time that we will make our own policy on China. We had in the speech that uh, Secretary of State Pompeo gave at the Nixon Centre in California a demand that the world take on the Chinese Communist Party. Well. Our Prime Minister has said, I've got his quote here, we're not making ideological war on China. And even after spending a day in the company of Secretary of State Pompeo, Maurice Payne, speaking for Australia, said the following, quote, we make our own decisions, our own judgments and the Australian national interest about upholding our security, our prosperity and our values. So that's really an answer to um, uh, John Mearsheimer, his demand that we follow all the way the American lead. Linda Reynolds said the same thing. In the same setting, having been exposed to the full Kansas charm and uh, adamantine insistence on taking on Beijing from Secretary of State Pompeo and uh, Secretary of Defence Esper, uh, Linda Reynolds was saying, quote, we have our own policy on China and we were very clear in articulating that, unquote. And clearly they're getting a message from their own Prime Minister who said, quote, 
The fact that Australia undertakes our own actions and our own initiatives and our own statements is the significant point. So, Mearsheimer, um, I think, is being provocative and challenging us. We're a very, very good ally on so many fronts in hosting the joint facilities on Australian soil, on extensive defence cooperation, in sending, Tony Abbott did it, I supported it when I was asked on Sky News, in sending Australian advisors and planes to the Middle East on a humanitarian mission at a crisis in the war in Iraq and Syria. We're a good ally. We're the first in, the first in to do it. And it was a considerable contribution. But we're also capable of expressing differences in asserting our national interest. When Tony Abbott put the phone down from talking to President Obama, having heard his advice on how we should not go into the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, he and his cabinet opted to go into the bank. In other ways, in other ways, in other words, they're acknowledging that while we have obligations as an ally, and we take that alliance very seriously, it's one of the three foundations of Australian foreign policy, we are still capable of charting a difference with the America when we assert an Australian national interest. And this debate is taking place at a time when many countries and commentators are raising doubts about US staying power in East Asia. Uh, political polarisation in Canberra is pretty bad. Well, it's much worse in Washington. And, uh, you know, the future direction of American foreign policy in the Trump or post-Trump era uh, is uncertain. Uh, Tony, a few years ago, you gave a keynote address to the Heritage Foundation, our friends uh, think tank in Washington, D.C., where you did warn about the America first mentality, about coming home America. How worried are you about America's commitment or lack thereof to the Asia-Pacific region? Look, uh, I, uh, I do think that there are forces in America that want America to retreat from the world. Uh, I think that would be very bad for the world. Um, I think that no country on earth has the strength and the benevolence uh, to act as a consistent guarantor of the universal decencies in the way that America has so since 1945. But look, just if I may, again, in response to some observations of Bob's, uh, of course, we make our own decisions. And of course, we decide our own attitudes to countries like China. But it shouldn't surprise anyone if 99 times out of 100, uh, our position turns out to be almost identical with the American one because we have almost identical values and we have very similar interests. And I've got to say that uh, if we want America to retreat, uh, the surest guarantee of that is constant carping uh, about America uh, and constant uh, nitpicking uh, when it comes to supporting America, uh, when America is standing up for the universal human decencies. Now, um, obviously, Taiwan is a huge issue. Uh, China is making extremely belligerent noises towards Taiwan. Uh, China plainly regards uh, the existence of a liberal democracy in Taiwan as an affront to the continued rule of the Communist Party. Now, uh, uh, if there was an attempt to take uh, Taiwan by force that was resisted by the Taiwanese uh, and America were not to be in some way involved, uh, the US global alliance system would collapse. Um, 
And if America was involved uh, and we weren't involved, I think that our own alliance system uh, would collapse. So it's all very well to say that America should be more diplomatic here and we could be more diplomatic there, um, uh, that we can differentiate ourselves more here and differentiate ourselves more there. But, but in the end, uh, we are part of a global alliance network that rests on the United States. Uh, and again, we can't expect all the heavy lifting to be done by the United States. We have to be prepared to do at least some of it ourselves, not on our own, but in conjunction with our friends and allies. Yeah, Tony, the fact remains that you as Prime Minister facing requests from at least three, maybe four American admirals and a hint from a US Secretary of State made the decision, decision, the considered decision, that we would not run patrols within that assumed 12 nautical mile radius around artificial Chinese structures. I say assumed because not for a moment would any Australian government recognise that that's a, a valid boundary. Um, but you made that decision, Tony. That was your decision. You made the decision. You made was. the decision over the over the. You, you made the decision, putting down the phone from a U.S. president, telling you not to lead Australia into the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. You made the decision to go in. So don't talk about about anyone else in this debate uh, being being out of place to question American leadership. Well, on one occasion, you declined to follow the American lead and the request of its defence personnel. On the second occasion. You, you, took, you stood up to a very popular, formidable US President, Barack Obama, and said, on that matter, Mr President, we will not be taking your advice. Tony Abbott, how would you respond to Bob Carr's observations that you stood up to the Americans? Tony. Well, I'm more than happy to be lauded for taking a robustly Australian position on things. And thank you, Bob, and thank you, Tom, for the <laughs> plaudits. But, but look... Um, I wasn't asked by the Americans uh, to participate in a freedom of navigation exercise within 12 kilometres of uh, one of those militarised islands in the South China Sea. I was not asked to do so. Um, but, 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 but the US, US admirals... Let Tony finish, Bob. Let Tony finish. They yeah. made that request yep. publicly. It's oh. on the public record. Well, um, there may well have been a US admiral who may well have said that uh, he, he would like America's allies... Uh, to do likewise, but there was no uh, formal request. Um, but, but look, uh, as I said, I was certainly turning my mind towards it uh, at the time when I stopped being Prime Minister. And uh, my strong inclination under the right circumstances, uh, when we were capable of responding effectively uh, to any interference from China, uh, would have been to do one. That would have been my strong uh, okay. my strong inclination. Well, Look, on the subject of the Asia uh, Infrastructure Investment Bank, uh, I took the view, the Abbott government took the view, that provided the governance standards were changed quite substantially from those that originally operated so that they much more reflected the governance arrangements for standard international organisations, we'd be happy to join. Uh, but we didn't join on China's terms we joined on our terms. Uh, and, of course, on our terms, uh, my suggestion to both the United States and to Japan was that they should join. Now, thus far, they haven't. First question here from Andy. It's a question to Bob Carr. 
what do you think of the infiltration in Australia's various institutions, uh, business, media, agriculture, research, uh, bearing in mind the research conducted by Professors uh, John Fitzgerald at La Trobe and uh, Clive Hamilton from Charles Sturt University? Bob Carr. Well, I think uh, the statements by those two are, are profoundly ludicrous. Um, when Clive Hamilton says that China has a territorial claim over Australia, we're being asked to contemplate something that has no evidentiary base whatsoever. When Clive Hamilton says that 40% of Chinese Australians are ready to take to the streets to rise up in support of Australia's enemy, these are his words, Australia's enemy, China, he's talking about a community, a very loyal Australian community that has no telephone box minority even contemplating such monstrous disloyalty to the country that has given them such a welcoming home. Um, when I hear stuff about Chinese students on Australian campuses, they're, they're pursuing CP propaganda and all the rest. And I spent some time taking out serious research that shows with 130,000 Chinese students in Australia, there have been a mere four incidents where there have been disagreements and polite disagreements at that between them and their staff, I think we're looking at a panic campaign. I think the greatest injustice, however, has been done to that large and very loyal Australian Chinese community. I, I know as only a premier with 10 years standing can know the diverse, uh, a prime minister too, to be fair to Tony, uh, the diversity of the multicultural nature of the Australian the Australian nation. And I've got to say, there is less interest in the politics of the homeland from Australian Chinese than there would be from very many other um, loyal Australian multi-ethnic, Australian ethnic communities, Australian communities. And I think a monstrous injustice was done to them by Fitzgerald and, and Clive Hamilton in saying there's something inherently disloyal about this large cohort, uh, 1.2 million people with backgrounds in China, in Australia, because they are not agitating about foreign policy issues of importance to Beijing. They are manifestly not doing that. And at every occasion, they've demonstrated the loyalty to the country of their adoption. And the China panic did immense damage to their self-confidence about the extent to which they were welcomed in this country. And I think that's very, very sad. It is a great debate about the extent to which China threatens our sovereignty, but at the same time, you have the other view, which says that Australia's media organisations are grossly exaggerating the China threat. Here's Paul Keating, one of your predecessors, Tony. This is the former Prime Minister talking at a security conference sponsored by the Australian newspaper in late 2019. There's alarm in Australia at the scale and speed of China's rise. And this comes out particularly in the hysteria in the media, especially the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, but run up often clearly in the rear by the Australian. The Australian media has been recreant in its duty to the public in failing to present a balanced picture of the rise, legitimacy and importance of China preferring instead to traffic in side plays dressed up with the cosmetics of sedition and risk. Former Prime Minister Paul Keating. Tony, you're a former Prime Minister 
and a former journalist, your response? Well, again, uh, we former prime ministers uh, uh, don't <laughs> like being critical of each other. We like to pay each other the due respect that the office deserves. But I would find it easier to take uh, my distinguished predecessor uh, seriously on this if he was just as critical of the vastly greater hysteria in the Chinese media about Australia. I mean, I don't see the Sydney Morning Herald or any other Australian publication describing China as chewing gum on Australia's shoe or anything like that. And, and you see, this is, this is my problem. Um, I don't pretend that the United States is perfect. I don't pretend that Australia is perfect. Uh, but we do support free speech. Uh, we are liberal pluralist societies. Uh, we do welcome di different people and different ideas. Uh, we are open to the world. Um, and China's not to anything like the same extent. So this idea that we should be hypercritical of us and very permissive of China, I just think is to get things wrong. It really is to get things wrong. Now, I want to see the strongest possible relationship with China consistent with our national interests and our national values. But I don't think we should be bending over backwards to accommodate uh, a very powerful and at times quite intimidatory strategic competitor to the West. Uh, we are now in a period of full-blown great power competition. Uh, and rather than, say, a plague on both their houses, I think we have to be fair dinkum and say, look, uh, America is one of us, so to speak, um, in a way that China isn't. Now, I would like China to change, uh, um, just as I suppose the Chinese would like us to change. Um, but when you look around the world, um, who has the ideals uh, that people warm to? Uh, who has the values and indeed the soft power uh, that echo uh, universally, it's very much the West led by the United States and with Australia playing an honourable part, and long may that be so. Tony, I'm not second to you in, in exalting the values of a multi-party democracy yeah. over a Marxist-Leninist state. I've spent a lot of my life making, uh, making that point. Um, I've got to say, though, there'd be very few Australians who express your confidence at this time in American leadership. Very few Australians who'd say that Donald Trump represents Western values. The man who's talking about postponing the US presidential election, postponing the election, and who supports voter suppression interventions in numerous American states through the governors that support him, um, is not someone who inspires the faith or confidence of Australians and the polls show it, the polls show it. I'm looking forward, here's where I'm sure we're on a, a similar path, I'm looking forward to November and the election of a, a, a Biden president, a, pre, a President Biden, um, because I think that we will see an America that can provide the sort of leadership that they ought to be providing. They ought to be providing. All of us have grown up in a world, especially in Australia, where we do look to the United States for leadership. We haven't got it. Let's let's not pretend that Trump comes remotely close. But I've looked, I've, I've looked at what Biden has said on foreign policy, his, his landmark article in foreign affairs, and what advisors like Kurt Campbell and John Podesta have said in the same journal 
about the path he will take. And he will, for example, for example, he will elevate climate diplomacy. And that's going to be a challenge for Australia. We can't be <clears throat> we can't be laggards on climate when when Joe Biden sits in that White House to the Secretary of State, whoever he or she is going to be, dedicated to elevating climate diplomacy. Biden's on record saying, by the way, that within 100 days of his election or inauguration, he will convene a world summit likely to be based on the G20 on climate. Now, on that note, Bob, on the question of climate diplomacy, Bob, we do have a question here from Brooke from Brisbane, and she asks, if you are so committed to taking climate change action, why do you continue to support coal exports to China? Well, um, I argue, I've argued consistently, there ought to be a price on carbon and we ought to be getting out of thermal coal. And the market is doing that anyway. The market's doing that anyway. Again and again, boardrooms are making the decision, making the decision that they're not touching thermal coal. Of the four big Australian banks, not one of them, not one of them is maintaining an interest in thermal coal. But we are still exporting coal to China. Doesn't that worry you as a climate advocate? Okay, but I'm working, I'm working on climate change and policies that see that wound out as it is being wound out. I'm a professor of business and climate, and I'm well informed about this. Business has voted to get out of thermal coal. Business might have voted that way in Australia, Bob, but it certainly hasn't voted that way in China. Uh, the Chinese uh, want more and more of our coal, thermal coal, as well as metallurgical coal, uh, because they appreciate that in much of the world, uh, the best way to generate affordable, reliable electricity uh, is still through coal. So uh, um, I think it's quite wrong to say that uh, just because woke boardrooms in Australia uh, harassed by green left activists are uh, nervous about coal means that there's no future for coal. Well, Tony, thermal coal exports are going down. India's just made a decision to drop significantly the purchase of Australian thermal coal. Japan has closed 100 coal-fired power plants. Not true, Bob. Let's move on from climate change and talk a question here from Lev. What do you think Australia should be doing? Gentlemen, Bob Carr, what do you think Australia should be doing in the South Pacific region to counter Chinese investments under the banner of the Belt and Road Initiative? Bob Carr. Yeah, there's not much under the, under the banner of Belt and Road Initiative in the Southwest Pacific. Um, but I think we've got to be, we've got to accept that as China's Overseas Development Assistance Program, its aid program increases in line with the size of its economy and its international involvement, we're under pressure to deliver more. I think we can be very, very proud of what our aid has done. And unlike aid from other countries, including China, um, our aid in the Pacific has been attuned to the real needs of people. We've avoided the sort of showpiece investment. The, 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 the time when China's going to challenge us is when they get out of building fancy offices for the presidents and prime ministers and get in to doing what OECD countries would consider their, their appropriate aid profile. And China, I think, will do that and their aid will become more effective. Um, they're entitled to do it. They're entitled to do it. We're not entitled to tell to lecture Vanuatu 
or, or um, <coughs> they can't consider a bilateral relationship with, with China when we, we assert our right to have a bilateral relationship with China and their relationship with, with China will include aid. We ought to do what we do very well, and that is provide aid better than any competitor. Tony, uh, I've got a question here from Helen. It's about uh, manufacturing. Uh, in the wake of this pandemic, calls are will probably grow uh, for Australia to develop a manufacturing sector. Uh, it's interesting to note that four decades ago, I think 30% of the workforce was employed in manufacturing. These days, it's about 6 to 7%. And Helen asks, how should we buy less from China, make stuff here, tariffs on Chinese imports or something else? Tony. It, it's a good question and it's not an easy one uh, for people who have been steeped in um, a, a kind of a globalist, if you like, way of thinking uh, to answer. And look, uh, I am a supporter of freer trade under normal circumstances, uh, but I think there's a world of difference between globalisation with countries that are largely like-minded, um, which support uh, market economies uh, and countries where so-called private businesses are under the thumb of government and which do everything with strategic intent, as happens in China. I think we have to accept that China is unlike any other country that we deal routinely with. Uh, China is very much like the old Soviet Union, only unlike the old Soviet Union, which was a third-rate economy with a first-rate military, China is a first-rate economy which is rapidly developing a first-rate military to match. And that's why uh, rules which might be fine, practices which might be fine with most of the countries of the world are problematic now with China. Practices that might have been fine with China five years ago when it still appeared to be in a liberalisation phase and may, lo may no longer be fine now. Mm. Now, um, on the question of incentivising manufacturing in Australia, um, the first thing that I think we should be doing uh, in all of Australia's own government purchasing, um, I think we should be giving a premium uh, to uh, suppliers who are sourcing their material locally. I think that's the first step in this path, but um, this is certainly something that has a long way to go. And um, I do think that we need to work out as a country what are the things on which we want to be totally self-reliant, what are the things on which we're prepared to be reliant on our friends, and what are the things on which we're ready to be reliant on the wider world. Let's change the subject and put this in a broader philosophical context. Bob, uh, Jocelyn here asks uh, the question about uh, China's trajectory. Now, when Deng Xiaoping modernised China or started the process of modernisation about four decades ago, elite opinion, this is Jocelyn, was with the economic advances that would lead to a middle class and that middle class would demand some form of democracy. We clearly saw that process evolve in South Korea and Taiwan. Um, that hasn't happened in China and uh, the prediction hasn't come to pass. And uh, Jocelyn says that, in fact, enhanced by technology, the Chinese Communist Party has turned China 
uh, into an even more dystopian society. Um, were we naive about China's trajectory? Well, people, people who spoke about that trajectory, I think, qualified it. We, we, none of us could have been certain. I don't remember waxing particularly optimistic about this. Um, some people did. I still, it's a very good question. I'm still of the view that as that middle class expands, it will assert itself. And the technology that bears down on it pretty oppressively now will end up, will end up inevitably being a force for self-expression and criticism. Mm. This, this current president has made policy for China in an, ideolo in an ideological and authoritarian manner. That can't be an assumption about his successor. And we can't assume that change won't come sooner rather than later in China. China will change as it's done over all its millennia of, of recorded history. And the change from one emperor to another, policies being reshaped by the incumbent, is an, almost an eternal process in China. And there'd be China watchers, there'd be sinologists with a deeper knowledge of this than I, who would tell you that China's not frozen forever. The genius of the Chinese people will express itself. And Sun Yat-sen's notion that China can be a democracy, self-governing, proud of its history and its traditions, and committed to social justice, but a parliamentary democracy is still rooted there. And so I'm an optimist. I'm an optimist. I'm an optimist about that. But in the meantime, we've got to make it clear, as, as apparently our ministers have done in Washington, and as Prime Minister Morrison has done in a recent speech, that we're not signing up to an ideological, an ideological interpretation of China and the, the ideological warfare that that entails. And I think that's sound. Yeah, but if all the available public opinion polling, to the extent that it's available, indicates that uh, a, lot of, a lot of Australians, a lot of people around the world very anxious about uh, the state of play in Hong Kong. Uh, Tony Abbott, uh, what do you think uh, Australia can do to help those uh, democracy activists uh, in Hong Kong, but also those besieged Muslims in the Xinjiang province? Uh, thanks, Tom. And look, uh, I probably should, uh, uh, in, in the spirit of friendship, say I quite agree with Bob's last answer. Uh, I think there are lots and lots of Chinese people um, who would like to see uh, a more liberal China. I think that there is a universal yearning, not just for prosperity, but over time for freedom and justice as well. And plainly freedom and justice is not what the people of China are getting from the communist government. So I think over time, uh, China can evolve in the same way that uh, Korea evolved in the same way that Taiwan has evolved in the same way that uh, Singapore has evolved. As I said at the start, there's no authoritarian gene in the, in the Chinese makeup. Um, Chinese people individually and collectively have shown themselves just as capable uh, of the liberal virtues as, uh, as anyone else. Uh, what can we do to help? Well, I think the important thing 
is to be as supportive as we humanly can be uh, of those Chinese people who are so bravely and courageously uh, speaking up for their own freedom. Um, I know there's a lot more that we can do practically uh, for people in Taiwan than there is for people in Hong Kong. Uh, uh, and uh, little that we can do for Hong Kong, there's even less that we can do uh, for the wages of the far west. Uh, but nevertheless, whatever we can do, uh, we should. Um, again, I think we need to make a very firm distinction between the current Chinese government, which is pretty brutal and horrible. That's not to say that we can't uh, from time to time make common cause with it, uh, as my government did on things like MH370 uh, and as we did uh, in terms of trying to have at that time freer trade. Um, but I think we should make a very strong distinction between the Chinese government, which uh, is pretty ugly, uh, and the Chinese people who are wonderful, decent people, uh, just like human beings everywhere, by and large, are wonderful, decent people. We are fast running out of time, but gentlemen, before we conclude proceedings, I want you to answer very succinctly this question, that given that relations between Australia and China have not been so bad since, uh, uh, well, probably the late 60s, early 70s, before the Nixon-Whitlam overtures to Beijing, um, what can we do, what can Canberra do to try to repair that relationship? Is there anything we can do? First to you, Bob Carr. Not really, not really. I, I, I think there's a more urgent task than thinking about our bilateral relationship. I think we're going to have to put that on hold. We have no official relationship with China. I think that's a, a failure of Australian diplomacy predominantly, but also a reflection on, on what China's done in Hong Kong. But, the, but, but this started in early 2017 with a deliberate tilt against China under the under the man who succeeded Tony Abbott. But, but there's a more urgent task, and that's this. You've got, for the first time, as Kevin Rudd spells out in his article in Foreign Affairs, that I'd recommend to all of us, you've got the real possibility of a, a shooting war in the South China Sea or the Taiwan Strait. And there's an immediate task on Australia and other nations and that is to exercise what influence we can with both sides about bringing them back from the brink. Prevention, prevention, prevention. Don't provoke. Devise off-ramps, establish lines of communication. Right now, we're in, in, in some peril of an accident at sea, a misunderstanding. Any, any one of, of easily identifiable an easily identifiable dozen events producing an armed conflict. Now, we haven't been in this state for a long time. Rudd talks about it being the most dangerous time since the, the Korean War in terms of the relationship between the US and China. And avoiding provocation, pulling the parties back from the brink, talking about prevention, talking about off-ramps, talking about lines of communication, is what ought to be absorbing our national energies. And if we're not doing it, we haven't got an acute sense of how bad it would be for us if there were an armed conflict between the two great powers. Uh, Tony Abbott, anything we can really do to help uh, renormalise relations with China? I agree with Bob. 
that a shooting war over Taiwan would be a catastrophe for the whole world, an absolute catastrophe, catastrophe for the whole world. But uh, there's really only one aggressor here, uh, and that's the very large and powerful country, <coughs> which is threatening to take back by force a liberal democracy of 25 million people. And rather than discouraging the friends of that liberal democracy from rallying to its aid if needs be, I think we should be saying very clearly that Taiwan does have friends and that China is the one uh, that needs to watch its step here. Former Prime Minister Tony Abbott, former Premier and Foreign Minister Bob Carr, to be continued. Thanks so much. And thanks to all of you tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, for decades, the Centre for Independent Studies has been a fiercely independent voice working to deliver evidence-based public policy. To be notified of our future videos, make sure you subscribe to our channel and then click the notification bell. We rely solely on the generosity of people like you for donations to advance our classical liberal cause. Check out the links on screen now to see how you can get involved.